Episode 7 of Space Prison by Tom Godwin. Read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Space Prison, Episode 7 The mockers were fresh meat, but they accepted the humans with such friendliness and trust that Barber lost all his desire to have one for supper or for any other time. They had a limited supply of dried meat, and there would be plenty of orange corn. They would not go hungry. They discovered that the mockers had living quarters in both the cool caves and the ones warmed by the hot springs. There was evidence that they hibernated during the winters in the warm caves. There were no minerals in the mockers' valley, and they set out to continue their circuit of the chasm. They did not get far, until the heat had become so great that the chasm's tributaries began going dry. They turned back then, to wade in the little valley, until the fall rains came. When the long summer was ended by the first rain, they resumed their journey. They took a supply of the orange corn and two of the mockers. The yellow one and its mate. The other mockers watched them leave, standing silent and solemn in front of their caves, as though they feared they might never see their two fellows or the humans again. The two mockers were pleasant company, riding on their shoulders and chattering any nonsense that came to mind, and sometimes saying things that were not at all nonsense, making Humboldt wonder if mockers could partly read human minds, and dimly understand the meaning of some of the things they said. They found a place where saltpeter was very thinly and erratically distributed. They scraped off all the films of it that were visible and procured a small amount. They completed their circuit and reached the foot of the long, steep slope of the crags without finding anything more. It was an awesome climb that lay before them, up a grade so steep and barred with so many low ledges that when their legs refused to carry them farther, they crawled. The heat was still very serious, and there would be no water until they came to the spring beyond the mountain summit. A burning wind, borne on the blazing floor of the chasm, followed them up the mountain all day. Their leather canteens were almost dry when night came, and they were no more than a third of the way up to the top. The mockers had become silent as the elevation increased, and when they stopped for the night, Humboldt saw that they would never live to cross the mountain. They were breathing fast, their hearts racing, as they tried to extract enough oxygen from the thin air. They drank a few drops of water, but they would not touch the corn he offered them. The white mocker died at mid-morning the next day, as they stopped for a rest. The yellow one crawled feebly to her side, and died a few minutes later. "'So, that's that,' Humboldt said, looking down at them. "'The only things on Ragnarok that ever trusted us, and wanted to be our friends, and we killed them.' They drank the last of their water and went on. They made dry camp that night, and dreams of cold streams of water tormented their exhausted sleep. The next day was a hellish eternity, in which they walked and fell and crawled, and walked and fell again. Barber weakened steadily, his breathing growing to a rattling panting. He spoke once that afternoon, to try to smile with dry, swollen lips, 
and say between his panting gasps, "'It would be hell to have to die, so thirsty like this.' After that he fell with increasing frequency, each time slower and weaker in getting up again. Half a mile short of the summit he fell for the last time. He tried to get up, failed, and tried to crawl. He failed at that, too, and collapsed face down in the rocky soil. Humboldt went to him and said between his own labored intakes of breath, "'Wait, Dan, I'll go on, bring you back water.' Barber raised himself with a great effort and looked up. "'No use,' he said. "'My heart, too much.' He fell forward again, and that time he was very still, his desperate panting no more. It seemed to Humboldt that it was half a lifetime later that he finally reached the spring and the cold, clear water. He drank the most ecstatic pleasure he had ever experienced in his life. Then the pleasure drained away, as he seemed to see Dan Barber trying to smile, and seemed to hear him say, "'It would be hell!' to have to die so thirsty like this. He rested for two days before he was in condition to continue on his way. He reached the plateau and saw that the woods goats had been migrating south for some time. On the second morning he climbed up a gentle roll in the plain and met three unicorns face to face. They charged at once, squealing with anticipation. Had he been equipped with an ordinary bow, he would have been killed within seconds. But the automatic crossbow poured a rain of arrows into the faces of the unicorns that caused them to swing aside in pain and enraged astonishment. The moment they had swung enough to expose the area just behind their heads, the arrows became fatal. One unicorn escaped, three arrows bristling in its face. It watched him from a distance for a little while, squealing and shaking its head in baffled fury. Then it turned and disappeared over a swell in the plain, running like a deer. He resumed his southward march, hurrying faster than before. The unicorn had headed north, and that could be for but one purpose—to bring enough reinforcements to finish the job. He reached the caves at night. No one was up but George Ord, working late in his combination workshop laboratory. George looked up at the sound of his entrance and saw that he was alone. "'So, Dan didn't make it?' he asked. "'The chasm got him,' he answered. And then, wearily, "'The chasm. We found the damn thing.' "'The red stratum?' It was only iron stains. "'I made a little pilot smelter while you were gone,' George said. "'I was hoping the red stratum would be ore. The other prospecting parties, none of them found anything.' "'We'll try again next spring,' he said. "'We'll find it somewhere, no matter how long it takes.' "'Our time may not be so long.' The observations show the sun to be farther south than ever. Then we'll make double use of the time we do have. We'll cut the hunting parties to the limit, and send out more prospecting parties. We're going to have a ship to meet the Gerns again. Sometimes, 
George said, his black eyes studying him thoughtfully. I think that's all you live for, Bill. The day when you can kill Gurns. George said it as a statement of fact, without censure, but Humboldt could not keep an edge of harshness out of his voice as he answered. For as long as I'm leader, that's all we're going to live for. He followed the game south that fall, taking with him Bob Craig and young Anders. Hundreds of miles south of the caves they came to the lowlands, a land of much water and vegetation and vast herds of unicorns and woods-goats. It was an exceedingly dangerous country due to the concentration of unicorns and prowlers, and only the automatic crossbows combined with never-ceasing vigilance enabled them to survive. There they saw the crawlers, hideous things that crawled on multiple legs like three-ton centipedes, their mouths set with six mandibles and dripping a stinking saliva. The bite of a crawler was poisonous, instantly paralyzing even to a unicorn, though not instantly killing them. The crawlers ate their victims at once, however, ripping the helpless and still-living flesh from its bones. Although the unicorns feared the crawlers, the prowlers hated them with a fanatical intensity, and made the use of their superior quickness to kill every crawler they found, ripping at the crawler until the crawler, in an insanity of rage, bit itself and died of its own poison. They had taken one of the powerful longbows with them, in addition to their crossbows, and they killed a crawler with it one day. As they did so, a band of twenty prowlers came suddenly upon them. Twenty prowlers, with the advantage of surprise at short range, could have slaughtered them. Instead, the prowlers continued on their way without as much as a challenging snarl. Now why, Bob Craig wondered, did they do that? They saw we had just killed a crawler, Humboldt said. The crawlers are their enemies, and I guess letting us live was their way of showing appreciation. Their further explorations of the lowlands revealed no minerals, nothing but alluvial material of unknown depth, and there was no reason to stay longer except that return to the caves was impossible until spring came. They built attack-proof shelters in the trees and settled down to wait out the winter. They started north with the first wave of woods-goats, nothing but lack of success to show for their months of time and effort. When they were almost to the caves, they came to the barren valley where the Gurns had herded the rejects out of the cruisers, and to the place where the stockade had been. It was a lonely place, the stockade walls fallen and scattered, and the graves of Humboldt's mother and all the others long since obliterated by the hooves of the Unicorn Legions. Bitter memories were reawakened, tinged by the years with nostalgia, and the stockade was far behind them before the dark mood left them. The orange corn was planted that spring, and the number of prospecting parties was doubled. The corn sprouted, grew feebly, and died before maturity. The prospecting parties returned one by one, each to report no success. He decided, that fall, that time was too precious to waste, 
they would have to use the alternate plan he had spoken of. He went to George Ord and asked him if it would be possible to build a hyperspace transmitter with the materials they had. "'It's the one way we could have a chance to leave here without a ship of our own,' he said. "'By luring a Gurn cruiser here and then taking it away from them.' George shook his head. "'A hyperspace transmitter might be built, given enough years of time. But it would be useless without power. It would take a generator of such size that we'd have to melt down every gun, knife, axe, every piece of steel and iron we have. And then we'd be five hundred pounds short. On top of that, we'd have to have at least three hundred pounds more of copper for additional wire. I didn't realize it would take such a large generator, he said after a silence. I was sure we could have a transmitter. "'Get me the metal, and we can,' George said. He sighed restlessly, and there was almost hatred in his eyes as he looked at the enclosing walls of the cave. "'You're not the only one who would like to leave our prison. Get me eight hundred pounds of copper and iron, and I'll make the transmitter, some way.' Eight hundred pounds of metal.' On Ragnarok, that was like asking for the sun. The years went by, and each year there was the same determined effort, the same lack of success. And each year the suns were farther south, marking the coming of the end of any efforts other than the one to survive. In the year thirty, when fall came earlier than ever before, he was forced to admit to himself the bleak and bitter fact. He and the others were not of the generation that would escape from Ragnarok. They were earth-born, they were not adapted to Ragnarok, and could not scour a world of 1.5 gravity for metals that might not exist. And vengeance was a luxury he could not have. A question grew in his mind where there had been only his hatred for the Gurns before. What would become of the future generations on Ragnarok? With a question, a scene from his childhood kept coming back to him. A late summer evening in the first year on Ragnarok, and Julia sitting beside him in the warm starlight. "'You're my son, Billy,' she had said. "'The first I ever had. Now, before so very long, maybe I'll have another one.' Hesitantly, not wanting to believe, he had asked, "'What some of them said about how you might die then. It won't really happen, will it, Julia?' "'It might.' Then her arm had gone around him, and she had said, "'If I do, I'll leave in my place a life that's more important than mine ever was. Remember me, Billy, and this evening, and what I said to you, if you should ever be leader.' Remember that it's only through the children that we can ever survive and whip this world. Protect them while they're small and helpless, and teach them to fight and be afraid of nothing when they're a little older. Never, never let them forget how they came to be on Ragnarok. Some day, even if it's a hundred years from now, the Gurns will come again, and they must be ready to fight, for their freedom and for their lives. 
He had been too young then to understand how truly she had spoken, and when he was old enough his hatred for the Gurns had blinded him to everything but his own desires. Now he could see. The children of each generation would be better adapted to Ragnarok, and full adaptation would eventually come. But all the generations of the future would be potential slaves of the Gurn Empire, free only so long as they remained unnoticed. It was inconceivable that the Gurn should never pass by Ragnarok through all time to come. And when they finally came, the slow, uneventful progression of decades and centuries might have brought a false sense of security to the people of Ragnarok, might have turned the stories of what the Gurns did to the rejects into legends, and then into myths that no one any longer believed. The Gurns would have to be brought to Ragnarok before that could happen. He went to George Ord again and said, "'There's one kind of transmitter we could make a generator for. A plain, normal-space transmitter, dot-dash, without a receiver.' George laid down the diamond cutting-wheel he had been working on. "'It would take two hundred years for the signal to get to Athena at the speed of light,' he said. Then, forty days after it got there, a Gurn cruiser would come hell-bent to investigate. I want the ones of the future to know that the Gurns will be here no later than two hundred years from now. And with always the chance that a Gurn cruiser in space might pick up the signal at any time before then. I see, George said, the sword of Damocles hanging over their heads to make them remember. You know what would happen to them if they ever forgot. You're as old as I am. You know what the Gurns did to us. I'm older than you are, George said. I was nine when the Gurns left us here. They kept my father and mother, and my sister was only three. I tried to keep her warm by holding her, but the hell fever got her that first night. She was too young to understand why I couldn't help her more. Hatred burned in his eyes at the memory, like some fire that had been banked but had never died. Yes, I remember the Gurns and what they did. I wouldn't want it to have to happen to others. The transmitter will be made so that it won't. The guns were melted down, together with the other items of iron and steel, to make the castings for the generator. Ceramic pipes were made to carry water from the spring to a water-wheel. The long, slow job of converting the miscellany of electronic devices, many of them broken, into the components of a transmitter proceeded. It was five years before the transmitter was ready for testing. It was early fall of the year thirty-five then, and the water that gushed from the pipe splashed in cold drops against Humboldt as the water-wheel was set in motion. The generator began to hum, and George observed the output of it and the transmitter as registered by the various meters he had made. "'Weak, but it will reach the Gurn monitor station on Athena,' he said. "'It's ready to send. What do you want to say?' "'Make it something short,' he said. "'Make it Ragnarok calling.' George poised his finger over the transmitting key. This will set forces in motion that can never be recalled. 
What we do here this morning is going to cause a lot of Gurns, or Ragnarok people, to die. It will be the Gurns who die, he said. Send the signal. Like you, I believe the same thing, George said. I have to believe it, because that's the way I want it to be. I hope we're right. It's something we'll never know. He began depressing the key. A boy was given the job of operating the key, and the signal went out daily, until the freezing of winter stopped the water wheel that powered the generator. The sending of the signals was resumed when the spring came, and the prospecting parties continued their vain search for metals. The suns continued moving south, and each year the springs came later, the falls earlier. In the spring of forty-five he saw that he would have to make his final decision. By then they had dwindled until they numbered only sixty-eight, the young ones gray and rapidly growing old. There was no longer any use to continue the prospecting. If any metals were to be found, they were at the north end of the plateau, where the snow no longer melted during the summer. They were too few to do more than prepare for what the old ones had feared they might have to face—big winter. That would require the work of all of them. Sheets of mica were brought down from the crags the summits of which were deeply buried under snow even in midsummer. Stoves were made of fire-clay and mica, which would give both heat and light, and would be more efficient than the open fireplaces. The innermost caves were prepared for occupation, with multiple doors to hold out the cold, and with laboriously excavated ventilation ducts and smoke outlets. There were sixty of them in the fall of fifty when all had been done that could be done to prepare for what might come. "'There aren't many of the earth-born left now,' Bob Craig said to him one night, as they sat in the flickering light of a stove. "'And there hasn't been time for there to be many of the Ragnarok-born. The Gurns wouldn't get many slaves if they should come now.' "'They could use however many they found,' he answered. The younger ones, were the best adapted to this gravity, would be exceptionally strong and quick on a one-gravity world. There are dangerous jobs where a strong, quick slave is a lot more efficient and expendable than complex, expensive machines. "'And they would want some specimens for scientific study,' Jim Lake said. "'They would want to cut into the young ones and see how they're built.' that they're adapted to this one-and-a-half-gravity world." He smiled with the cold mirthlessness that always reminded Humboldt of his father, of the lake who had been the Constellation's lieutenant commander. According to the books, the Gurns never did try to make it a secret that when a Gurn doctor or biologist cuts into the muscles or organs of a non-Gurn to see what makes them tick, he wants them to be still alive and ticking as he does so. Seventeen-year-old Don Chiara spoke, to say slowly, thoughtfully, "'Slavery and vivisection. If the Gurn should come now, when there are so few of us, and if we should fight the best we could and lose, it would be better for whoever was the last of us left 
to put a knife in the hearts of the women and children than to let the Gurns have them. No one made any answer. There was no answer to make, no alternative to suggest. "'In the future there will be more of us, and it will be different,' he said at last. "'On earth the Gurns were always stronger and faster than humans, but when the Gurns come to Ragnarok they're going to find a race that isn't really human any more. They're going to find a race before which they'll be like wood-goats before prowlers.' "'If only they don't come too soon,' Craig said. That was the chance that had to be taken, he replied. He wondered again as he spoke, as he had wondered so often in the past years, if he had given them all their death sentence when he ordered the transmitter built. Yet the future generations could not be permitted to forget, and steel could not be tempered without first thrusting it into the fire. He was the last of the young ones when he awoke one night in the fall of fifty-six and found himself burning with the hell fever. He did not summon any of the others. They could do nothing for him, and he had already done all he could for them. He had done all he could for them, and now he would leave forty-nine men, women, and children to face the unknown forces of Big Winter while over them hung the sword he had forged, the increasing danger of detection by the Gurns. The question came again, sharp with the knowledge that it was far too late for him to change any of it. Did I arrange the execution of my people? Then, through the red haze of the fever, Julius spoke to him out of the past, sitting again beside him in the summer twilight, and saying, Remember me, Billy, and this evening, and what I said to you. Teach them to fight, and be afraid of nothing. Never let them forget how they came to be on Ragnarok." She seemed very near and real, and the doubt faded and was gone. Teach them to fight. Never let them forget. The men of Ragnarok were only fur-clad hunters who crouched in caves but they would grow in numbers as time went by. Each generation would be stronger than the generation before it, and he had set forces in motion that would bring the last generation the trial of combat and the opportunity for freedom. How well they fought on that day would determine their destiny, but he was certain once again what that destiny would be. It would be to walk as conquerors before beaten and humbled Gurns. End of Episode 7